Sarcoma Insight. Sarcoma Insight, this is our destination for education for both benign and malignant tumors. All right, welcome back everyone to today's episode of Sarcoma Insight. Uh, Today we'll be discussing our topic of metastatic bone disease and we're excited to have another special guest on our episode today. Izu, how have things been for you? I know that I believe you went to one of these meetings that we have recently. How was that? Tell us about what that experience was. I was hoping to be able to go, but I couldn't make it this year. Yeah, I mean, I think some periods of time, it feels like our life is all meetings. I was recently at the uh, Academy uh, for Hip and Knee Surgeons. Uh, we had a meeting based it's primarily surgeons who work on total joint replacements and reconstructions around the pelvis. And uh, Dr. Couch, actually, uh, who's here with us, uh, we we had the pleasure of meeting and connecting with each other again, and we're excited to have him on today. He is assistant professor of orthopedics at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, he primarily specializes in orthopedic oncology and joint arthroplasty. Uh, he did his residency in the University of Arkansas, and his fellowships were first uh, at the University of Florida, Orthopedic Oncology, and then at the Mayo Clinic for a joint replacement. He is from Texas. How is it, uh, uh, Dr. Couch, moving from uh, Texas to Rochester, Minnesota? Thanks so much, Izzy, and thanks for having me. The change has been tough, especially the winters, of course. The summers are gorgeous here, though. It's like a uh, like a, a Texas Texas winter all summer long, but the uh, snow snow stays all winter and uh, usually doesn't melt till May, so that's a, that's a little tough, um, but... We're getting accustomed to it. I got a set of cross-country skis last year, so kind of rolled the flow. Wow. Do you ski, Elise? Uh, I don't, personally. At least no downhill skiing. I'd like to do some cross-country skiing, but I do more like snowshoeing. How was uh, cross-country skiing? It's tough work. Yeah. It's <laughs> essentially like hiking and trudging through the snow, but uh, I'm still a novice at it, but I think the way to do it is to go to groomed trails, uh, which yeah. they do have some in town. I, I tried doing it around my neighborhood on the trails and it's just fresh powder. And so I was just trudging through and creating the trails myself. So a little, little tough. Are you doing the classic skiing or skate skiing? Uh, the classic. Yeah. There's some small hills that are 45 minutes an hour, hour outside of town, but there's actually some it. pretty decent skiing up on the North, uh, North shore near, um, up above Duluth, um, there's some areas where you can downhill ski, but nothing like Colorado or out west. Definitely a good workout. Very cool. All right. Well, we will get started with um, our, our episode today. So thank you so much for joining us today. We're looking forward to having you and having a really nice discussion. So just to start things off, we always start pretty simply, but what is metastatic bone disease? Yeah. So a couple of different ways of thinking about it. So I know this is a kind of a primarily a sarcoma podcast, but uh, there's both metastatic disease can be both from sarcoma or carcinoma, which I I think we're going to discuss the kind of the differences as well later. But essentially what metastatic disease is, is the primary tumor develops a mutation. Some of the cells do a secondary mutation and find out how to enter the bloodstream and then travel to another part of the body. Um, And this is actually pretty rare in the big scheme of things, because if you imagine your cells have already developed a mutation and become a cancer, whether it's a carcinoma or a sarcoma, but then they have to develop a secondary mutation to allow them to then exit from where they started and then travel and then enter into another tissue type in the body. So it's a, uh, a pretty, um, there's, it's not super common because of that in the big scheme of things. Although 
we this is the biggest one of the biggest parts of our oncology practices so it's still um, 80 or 90 percent of what we see as orthopedic oncologists um, in our cancer practice whereas um, compared to primary sarcomas it's um, much more common than that but in the big scheme of things um, overall still a very rare process that happens yeah absolutely and i I think that's a a really good point as you mentioned we primarily focus on sarcomas or other disorders that are related to sarcoma or other benign diseases that start in the bone, but metastatic bone disease is typically a bit different in terms of the pathology and the treatment's very different than how we take care of patients with a a primary bone or soft tissue sarcoma. So tell us how you typically explain the difference between carcinoma and sarcoma to to your patients in your practice. Yeah, so I um, I try to explain it in a way that Sarcoma starts in connective tissue, effectively. So it starts in areas like muscle, bone, cartilage, uh, the connective tissue between those layers or fat. Um, so that's most commonly the or original source. Whereas carcinoma, it's when you typically hear cancer, that's what you're thinking of. And that's things that come from essentially hollow organs or organs that secrete materials. So things like lungs, um, prostate, kidneys, thyroid, um, those are the, that's the primary differences, kind of internal organs versus more the connective tissue where the primary origin source is from. And in the big scheme of things, the carcinomas, as I mentioned before, are far more common uh, than the sarcomas as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of, of breaking that down. Um, I think just to clarify as well for our listeners, sarcomas can also metastasize to the bone, but in general, when we are taking a care of metastatic disease within the bone, it's still most commonly from carcinomas, as you mentioned, which are overall just the more common cancers in general that we see in the U.S. So probably the ones that people are more familiar with, like, for example, are it's going back to what easy mentioned, prostate cancer and breast cancer uh, awareness month are right around now. And so those are some of the cancers that we can see that would spread to the bone. They're types of carcinomas. Easy, anything to add on that? Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the, you know, sarcomas that does go to bone, uh, often we talked about at our previous episode on uh, osteosarcomas, uh, which has a predilection of metastasizing to bone. In general, um, when we have metastases with sarcomas, the primary concern is always the lungs. Uh, whereas when we have metastases from carcinomas, uh, we worry about other organs um, and always worry about the bone. So, Dr. Couch, who would you say uh, are the primary people who would be diagnosed uh, either with a carcinoma, but with metastatic disease to bone from a carcinoma? Yeah, the primary demographic population are patients in their, usually in their sixth decade of life or later. So patients over 50 um, are the most common uh, patients that we see. And um, the the main sources that we see them from, so there's kind of five uh, that are the most common originating source for this metastatic disease traveling to bone. Um, there's a mnemonic, um, uh, BLT with a kosher pickle is one that I always think of. So, uh, BLT is breast, lung, and thyroid, and then a kosher pickle. K is for kidney, which actually renal cancer is the proper term for it. Um, <clears throat> and pickle for prostate. So, um, those are the five most common, um, sources that we see. And so these, these cancers are most common in patients, um, over age 50 as well. So this is the kind of the primary different demographic patient that we, um, see with this 
uh, disease process. Definitely. I, I used the same mnemonic in, in training as well. So, so thank you for, for bringing that up. I think uh, any of our trainee listeners in particular will, will appreciate that reminder. Uh, but yeah, I think that, yeah, that's a really good point in terms of anyone over the age of, of 50 uh, is typically, these are typically the patients who are at highest risk of being diagnosed with metastatic bone disease. That's relevant as well when we're seeing a new uh, lesion within the bone. That's always going to be something that we think about on the differential. If this is a first spot in the bone, could this be a primary bone sarcoma? Some of which we've talked about before, but also this is certainly a, a very high risk that it could be a first diagnosis of metastatic disease to the bone from another site. I don't know about this, uh, by the way, this uh <laughs> Mnemonic, uh, you guys. <laughs> uh, sorry to interrupt there, at least. One thing about a metastasis uh, is, is the, along with them happening, is we want to have an understanding of how, how they happen, but also when they happen. And so is it possible to have these metastases even years after undergoing primary treatment uh, for a disease? Um, or does it only happen right at the time of presentation? Yeah, good question. Is that can, it can be either either or. Most, most commonly, we see them in short duration after the initial diagnosis. And oftentimes, this is the initial presentation that the patient has to us. Um, I can um, say I've seen multiple patients in my clinic with a painful bone lesion. We then create, do the workup, which we'll talk about later as far as how to, how to evaluate these patients and how to try to determine what, um, where the source is or if this is a primary uh, bone sarcoma, as uh, at least mentioned. Um, <clears throat> but then um, there are patients that present years later. And there's a, another interesting kind of concept is that if the development of metastasis happens many years later after the initial disease is treated, we think those patients also probably have a better prognosis as well, which is kind of a, an interesting um, <clears throat> kind of phenomenon that if there's like a 10 or 15 years between, say, um, your patient was treated for breast cancer a decade or more ago, and then we find a new metastasis that much later, we think those patients likely do better than patients that have developed those very early on in the disease process. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to bring up. Um, there's always things that we're, we're learning uh, more and more with some of the research that we're doing, and that's definitely been um, a really important thing that has come to light, uh, but probably reflects the underlying biology of the disease, as you mentioned, maybe less aggressive since it's appearing at a, at a later time. Um, but that's one of the things that we're definitely trying to learn more and more about so that we can provide a better understanding um, of the disease to the patients when we have those informed discussions in, in the clinic. Um, and so sort of along the, the same times of or sort of along the same lines of when this might occur, but where in the body do you typically see these lesions or areas of metastatic bone disease? Are there some sites that are more common than others? Yeah, the most common site by far is the spine or the axial skeleton. And then um, right after the spine is the pelvis. I think those are number one and number two. Um, the There are some providers that both specialize in spine and uh, oncology work. Um, and I have a couple of partners that do that specifically. Um, but there are quite a number of uh, metastases that we see in the in the extremities as well. Um, so I, my practice primarily focuses on metastasis around the pelvis and lower extremity. Um, and so we do see a quite a, quite a large 
portion of patients with those metastases as well, but uh, by the most common, number one, spine, number two, pelvis. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then kind of in line with that, when they do come to your clinic, how do the patients typically present? What's typ- what is the uh, chief complaint or what's the reason for the referral typically? What are, what are patients coming in and saying that they have that led to this diagnosis? Yeah, my referral pattern at a ab- academic medical center is a little probably different <laughs> than a, a community surgeon sure. that would be seeing these. But uh, most yeah. commonly, my patients are coming from a medical oncologist um, that has already been following them for their primary disease, whether it's um, breast, lung, thyroid, uh, prostate, or renal cancer. And then they find a new lesion. Most commonly, it's either that there's pain in the new in an area that they haven't had pain before. That's probably the most common presentation, um, or a pathologic fracture or a fracture through one of these bone lesions um, that is newly diagnosed. Um, and so those are probably probably by far the two most common presentations. Um, we often are also uh, referred patients that have had imaging for workup of metastatic disease and followed throughout their course of treatment that have a lesion um, that don't have pain and don't have a pathologic fracture. Um, and then those patients often leave us kind of with the question, and we have some criteria as far as how to treat those patients, but what, what to do when you don't have pain, you don't have a fracture, um, should we treat it? Should we monitor it? Is it a non-surgical or a surgical management? And we'll, we'll go into that a little bit further, I think, as well. Yeah, yeah, and and definitely another area that we're trying to learn more and more about to figure out which patients to treat for that, what we call an impending pathologic fracture or not. But um, a lot of debate with that. We have some ways we're trying to uh, learn how to predict the behavior of these lesions a little bit better all the time. But um, yeah, those are, uh, I think you you, uh, covered all the different ways that we see uh, these patients come into our clinics or sometimes through an ER, as you mentioned, certainly in some situations where there's a pathologic fracture that that's not a patient that's coming in, walking into your clinic, but might come in through the emergency department um, in that case. And then for, for doc, Dr. Couch, for any of these patients who do come into um, you, your office or be evaluated by you um, for a painful bone lesion or maybe a pathologic fracture, I think we've done a good job of educating our listeners on what the first imaging study is, which is always an x-ray. What would you be looking for on these x-rays, all right, of the joints? And then would you order any additional imaging, either more x-rays, a CT scan, or an MRI, if at all? Good good initial point, Izu. The, uh, definitely starting with x-rays, orthogonal x-rays, so a, a front and a side view, typically, or AP and lateral view. Um, to evaluate the lesion. And depending on the patient's history, uh, that a little bit determines whether advanced imaging or what part of the body, if advanced imaging should be done. So some of the bones, of course, have a more complex 3D structure, such as the pelvis. Um, Pretty routinely, I'll obtain CT scans if the patient has a uh, pelvis lesion to better quantify the remaining quality of bone. Um, And as far as how they present or how they look on x-ray, there's a few different ways uh, that they can interact with bone. So the um, tumor cells themselves, once they've spread to bone, they can induce some of the um, cells that are already in the bone to either build new bone or break down bone. And those are what we call lytic or blastic lesions. Um, and some of them have both, or they're called mixed lesions. And so that's those are some of the characteristics we can see on x-ray and also better quantify on CT as well. But um, so I would say for... Um, if it's a known, a patient with a known primary carcinoma or cancer that um, we believe is spread 
to the bone, then often x-rays of the extremities are enough. But for more complex bones, or if we don't know the primary source of disease, if that hasn't been determined, we can talk about that workup as well for unknown primary metastatic disease. Um, then there's a more extensive workup, and that includes um, CTs, more wide-ranging, typically CT, just abdomen, pelvis, to help us in that workup for looking for a primary source of malignancy. Yeah, absolutely. Really good points there as to when we order advanced imaging and why and what that's for. So, um, and then you mentioned the imaging that you would get. When do you think about uh, obtaining a biopsy in order to determine what this lesion is? I think you've alluded to it already, but I'll let you kind of restate when you think that would be uh, the appropriate step before proceeding with potential surgical options if they're indicated. Yeah, my typical algorithm is the patient has a known primary diagnosis and has clear bone metastasis or suspected bone metastasis. If they've never had a bone biopsy before and there are multiple lesions, and I would typically recommend biopsying the most easily accessible lesion to first confirm that, yes, they do have metastasis to bone. Um, if they've previously had that and they have a new lesion, then I'd, I'd say typically not re-biopsying um, if it's a new a new bone lesion, uh, particularly in a high-risk area, so say in the patient in the proximal femur or mid-thigh their femur have a, a lesion, um, the risk of biopsying that and leading to a pathologic fracture is pretty high. And if they already have a bone diagnosis, then we already really know what our treatment plan is going to be in stabilizing that um, impending pathologic fracture. Yeah, really great point. Uh, and I think kind of mentioning that algorithm, I think everyone who practices orthopedic oncology tries to come up with an algorithm that, that works well for them. I'd say for the most part, ours are all really similar, but though they're uh, kind of region to region, I'm sure there's going to be some slight differences on on how exactly that algorithm works. But I think that summarizes a really useful framework for, for most of us. Um, uh, Izu, any points to add with that? No, I mean, I, I think I think that's primarily it. You know, I, I do think for, you know, any of our trainees listening, you know, that's a very important point there about your imaging studies when you do know or do not know uh, there that there is a, a primary or not. And so considering a chest abdomen pelvis and a patient who d- CT scan uh, in a patient who does not have a diagnosis with a bone lesion, is very important in terms of identifying the primary area. In some cases, we might consider skeletal surveys, and in some cases, we'll obtain uh, additional lab studies, which would be uh, evaluating and trying to identify where the initial tumor might be coming from. So, your prostate-specific antigen, um, you know, to evaluate for prostate, uh, etc. It's probably a reasonable point to bring up. Reasonable time to bring up root grafts criteria, just so. Uh, for the trainees on the call as well. So it's a um, study that was done at a University of Chicago um, back in the, the 90s. I think it was a JBJS article, but essentially they looked at um, what criteria they could um, create in evaluating these patients with an unknown um, primary disease with, with known skeletal metastasis. Um, and they looked at most of the things that we've said already. So that's routine laboratory workup, of course, a good uh, medical history and exam, um, but then the imaging studies in addition would be a CT of the chest, abdomen, pelvis, and a whole body bone scan. And they found that they f- could identify up to 85% of uh, where the primary cancer was compared to just a simple biopsy alone, which I think they had a significantly less, only about 60 or 65% uh, 
they could identify with a biopsy where that tumor was coming from originally. Yeah, no, and that's definitely a, a study we still reference heavily to this day. So that's uh, uh, definitely established the framework for how we how we think about these patients. Um, and this is most relevant, as you mentioned, in those patients with who are older, over the age of 50, who come in with a, a new bone lesion and suspected metastasis and unknown primary. But really good points that you can usually get to your diagnosis before the biopsy stage, a lot of the time using this uh, criteria and that workup that you mentioned. So really good point. And we will work to have that a link to that article as part of uh, this uh, episode. So if you'd like to read up on that, uh, you'd be more than welcome to uh, as well. In lines with some of what we're discussing, so, so far uh, we have had uh, a patient come in, they have some a painful lesion, right? It might be lytic with bone missing or blastic with extra bone that should not be there or mixed in some ways, or both of them, or they might have a complete fracture through that area. And so do your imaging studies, right? You might do a biopsy uh, in order to get this. Um, what then would you consider for treatment for these patients? Um, I, you know, I think it, it is worthwhile for us to go into your thought process for evaluating these fractures for concern of them fracturing, which I believe would probably guide your surgical interventions more. Um, and I would love to hear your thoughts uh, on these as well. Yeah, my um, to similar, going back to algorithms, my uh, algorithm similarly follows the Morell's classification, which um, is that always have to discuss whenever you're talking about metastatic disease and, and lesions. And so, um, and often it's, the criteria gives you a number to put on the risk of pathologic fracture, but it's uh, also just based on the imaging itself. You can kind of get a general feel of, okay, this looks like it's mechanically going to fail at some point and we should look at stabilizing this. And, and that's the big picture in metastatic disease is that our goal is typically not to cure the cancer, but to stabilize the bone and prevent the patient from having a pathologic fracture and also maintain their quality of life um, while they're on treatment for their um, their primary disease. So um, as far as the, the classification itself, we can go briefly into that. I think that's always a good thing to touch on. So it looks at four different um, categories. So it looks at the location of where the metastasis in the bone is, um, and the scores for each of these categories are you get one, two, or three points. And so um, the upper limb is the lowest risk, um, primarily because it's not a weight-bearing area. So it's a, you get a single point for upper limb, two points for lower limb. Um, and then the highest risk area is your proximal femur, or what's called peritrochanteric, and that's, a, that's three points. And then similarly, uh, pain has a similar score. And so mild, moderate, or functional pain gets a one, two, or three. A lesion, um, the characteristics of it, whether it's blastic, which is one point, mixed, which is two points, or lytic, which is three. And lytic, of course, would lead to the highest risk because it's uh, really compromised the structural integrity of the bone. And then the size based on the, the thickness compared to the cortical diameter. So it's less than a third, one third to two thirds, and greater than two thirds. And all of these are based on x-ray evaluation. That's how the initial classification was created. So it's, um, I think at that point, CT was not widely used to characterize these. So they were categorizing these based on um, radio, plain radiographs. Um, and a score of greater than eight suggests that you should probably do something. Um, so as far as 
uh, what, what to do is typically stabilization in the lower extremity. Most commonly, we would use a load sharing device. So whether it's a using an intermedullary rod um, is most common what we'd use in the femur, um, something that can the patient can bear weight through immediately, protect the bone. Um, whereas in the upper extremity, the non-weight bearing areas, often uh, a, a rod can be um, used, but also a plate and cement fixation um, or something along those lines is also a reasonable choice for the upper extremity. Thank you very much for taking us through that. So as you mentioned, there's those four points um, and the lowest score you can get on that possibly is a four if you had one in each category. Some people when they're hear it, I think, or some of the younger trainees might think a zero is the lowest score, but you have to remember that you still can get our one point is the lowest score for each of them. So it's a range from four to 12. And as you mentioned, when you get up into those double digits in particular, you're probably thinking about fixing this or stabilizing this potential in, impending fracture before that happens. Um, but that's always always a difficult choice to make. And I think that's where a lot of the um, a lot of that interaction that you have with the patient and trying to learn a little bit more about the biology of uh, the disease from their primary medical oncologist is really important as well to determine their trajectory because um, those can be some of the difficult decisions to have when it's those numbers that are right in the middle there. Um, uh, but we certainly want to do the best we can to try to stabilize these before a fracture happens rather than after. But we don't have a perfect way of predicting exactly which which lesions will go on to fracture or which ones will eventually uh, or will remain stable and, and not lead to a fracture. But it's a difficult decision to have. And especially when you're putting potentially some sicker patients at the risk of a surgery, though typically these are um, shorter, but at the same time, it's still still a surgery that you're recommending for a patient. Um, and whether they need that or not in advance is, I think that's a sometimes can be a difficult decision. And for the trainees listening, I. I was asked to walk through the Morel's criteria on my oral board exam this summer. So it is an important thing to know and keep keep note of. I had a one of my patients on my boards had a metastatic lesion that we treated prophylactically. And uh, so always keep that in your in your mind and make sure you're familiar with it. Right, definitely. Whether whether you're going into oncology or not, it's these are even some kinds of patients who uh, some of our colleagues in the community who are not oncology trained may be seeing and asked to help take care of. So not uncommon. Yes. And along with the Morales criteria, there are other criteria that are um, being used or gaining traction in terms of being able to assess uh, the stability of the bone with the goal of predicting likelihood of fracture. Um, some of these primarily use CT scans, uh, which are uh, relatively quick to obtain and give us more information than uh, the x-rays would um, as well. So, okay. Sounds like we went into a little bit of treatments uh, at the end of that. And, and I would like to, I mean, this is, we have three surgeons on here, so we cannot leave this discussion without talking about surgical management uh, a little more in depth, uh, especially the pelvis, which I think you have a special interest in um, as well, uh, Dr. Couch. But in terms of our treatment options for patients who present with uh, these lesions, all right, uh, what are, are the options? Does everyone get surgery or are there other options for them medically um, or non-surgical, if at all? Yeah, definitely 
both um, are options. I always try to start with the non-surgical options if it's reasonable. Um, and so the primary aspect, so let's just kind of focus on the pelvis a little bit, but it's applicable to really all metastatic lesions. If it's the patient has a lesion and it's not at a super high risk for fracture, um, then I don't, but it's causing pain. Um, or we can see that there's progression or potential compromise in the future, then I'd recommend initiating some non-surgical management. And what that typically involves is radiation to the to the bone lesion um, in combination with their um, treatment for their primary carcinoma. So whether that's a um, traditional chemotherapy or immunotherapy or some kind of more advanced um, newer treatment for that, um, those are the mainstays in addition to protecting the weight um, on that joint if it's causing pain or that bone if it's causing pain during that treatment. And then serial imaging to make sure that that lesion is responding or appears to be um, <clears throat> making improvement as far as either filling in the lesion, which doesn't always happen fully, even if the metastatic lesion, um, the cells in it are killed um, with the treatment. Um, they don't always reconstitute, but making sure it's not progressing or making sure their pain is improving over time are kind of the treatment responses that we look at to um, to those non-surgical treatments. Yeah, um, thank you for that. You know, we've, we've mentioned a bunch of different uh, tumor types. You know, you talked about the BLT, or was it kosher pickle? Yes. Is that correct? Uh, do any of these tumors, uh, if you're going to be treated though and try to treat them surgically, do they require any additional special management uh, pre-op or, or post-op compared to treating the other tumors uh, surgically? Yeah, some some tumor types specifically, renal renal cells, always one that comes to mind, is particularly resistant to radiotherapy. That being said, radi radiotherapy still is a treatment um, for that. We just know that they don't respond quite as well. Um, so some of those tumor types will add stabilization in as well because we know their the structure is likely not going to reconstitute, um, and so. Most, most commonly, um, and if we're planning on surgery for a tumor of this subtype, um, we'll also do some embolization of the tumor. So we know that this tumor specifically has a very high amount of uh, blood flow to it, and it recruits a lot of um, neovascularization or new, new blood flow to it, um, as well as thyroid is another subtype um, that has this similar pattern. Um, and then as far as uh, surgical treatment, there's kind of range from more less invasive to, to higher invasive, which we can um, talk about a little as well. So um, the less invasive surgery, so if we're thinking about the um, pelvis, uh, one that's uh, very common now is percutaneous fixation. So percutaneous screw fixation, and often we augment or um, add in cement fixation, or there's a, a newer technology, it's a um, polymer that's cured by UV light. Uh, but either one of those can help give additional robust stabilization in addition to some um, rebar with a um, with a screw across it as well, or a series of screws um, to stabilize those lesions. They Similarly, in the long bones, a intermedullary rod is a relatively um, low in low or minimally invasive procedure to perform compared to some open procedures like a say a joint replacement or joint reconstruction so those are kind of on the on the spectrum um, of surgical management yeah definitely I think, I think it's good to always talk about things in terms of what the variety of options are so i think that summarizes it really well in terms of what what the spectrum is from more limited or smaller incisions to a bigger open procedure and when you might be thinking about 
using each of those processes. Um, and I know Easy in particular has uh, has trained with a mentor who's uh, very adept in that percutaneous fixation technique. Um, and anything else to add from your your experience? Um, I mean, I, I I do believe that you know every uh, tumor or every case should be uh, evaluated uh, individually uh, to assess what treatment plans are most ideal for the patient and. Uh, in some cases, uh, there are benefits uh, to having an option that doesn't require a very large uh, approach and incision, um, uh, whereas uh, other times they do require a large reconstruction, um, which I would really love uh, to get you back uh, on another episode, uh, Dr. Couch, to discuss some intricacies uh, of the of the public reconstructions, um, if if you would if you would like. Absolutely. Um, I'd be happy to discuss that. The another another big point that we haven't touched on yet is titrating the treatment based on kind of the patient's expectations or potential outcomes as well. And sometimes that's a that's a hard topic to discuss and one that usually in conjunction with the patient's medical oncologist is really important to talk with as far as potential patient survival. Um, so some of these cancers we know, unfortunately, there's not not a lot of good options for leading to long-term survival. And so um, we want to make sure that whenever we're treating something surgically, we don't make the treatment outlast or longer as far as the recovery from the treatment longer than the patient's predicted survival. Um, we want to get, absolutely. We want to add quality to the remaining years of their life. And we don't want them to be recovering from a major surgery for the, the rest of their life. So our goal, once again, is to give these patients pain relief and restore function and allow them allow them to enjoy the rest of their lives. Hopefully, many of these patients we can get on to, to cure, but we know, unfortunately, with cancer treatment, that can be a little unpredictable. Yes, I think very, very valuable, important point right there. Um, and, you know, I think something that is a difficult conversation, but also difficult to, you know, anticipate how someone might respond to treatment or how uh, long uh, a life they would have left based on the severity of uh, of their disease, um, but uh, excellent point. Yeah, and, and kind of as you alluded, we have some of these algorithms that are built in to help at least provide some sort of a framework, but there's always that room for individualization of care because every patient's presentation is going to be a little bit different. And uh, I think you highlighted a really excellent word and point that always comes up in these discussions, which is just goals overall of, of the treatment and of the care that you're providing. So um, I, I, know, I know you mentioned it a couple of times, but usually in these cases that that goal is not cure, but is focusing more on uh, increasing the patient's ability to have good quality of life and to be able to mobilize in a, in a safe way in that time that may be, may be remaining. There is probably one important caveat to that. There are some disease subtypes, so specifically renal cell, going back to that one, um, that we know that if there's it's illegal metastatic disease or just a few areas of metastasis or less, that there is potentially some survival benefit with removal or resection of those metastasis. So that's kind of the exception to the rule um, when we're discussing metastatic disease, but uh, an important one to remember if a patient presents with that um, type of pattern of metastasis. 
Absolutely. And then in, in those instances, as you mentioned, then we're not just talking about potentially putting a treatment through the area of the disease, but even removing that entire region or site of disease or metastasis. So excellent point. Um, and that's definitely the the common disease type in which we would be having that discussion, though there there may be some others. And again, as we're learning more and more um, about these different cancer subtypes and as the treatments are improving from a medical oncology standpoint as well, um, that may be an option that we can provide for, for other patients with just single or countable sites of disease for other cancer types also. So really, really good point. Yeah. Um, and so uh, next question I have for you is uh, we always try to finish with at least our finale periods. Um, definitely some differential diagnosis or what else would you think about if someone had these painful bone lesions? Um, and then what surveillance, if any, do you do for patients with a history of metastases that you're following or treating? Yeah, great question as well. The um, other, it, specifically patients in this category, so we're saying patients over 50 with a new bone lesion. Other things that can uh, present, which are in the similar category, would be myeloma, lymphoma, both still cancers, but not necessarily categorized under the metastatic disease subtype. Um, and then we always have to think about infection in here. That's that's a common denominator that can present as a great mimicker looking like multiple things. It can look like cancer around a, a joint replacement. It can look like osteolysis or wear debris. Um, but that's, that's one we definitely have to... Uh, consider there are some benign entities as well um, that can present looking like this. If they have a lytic lesion that's expansile, um, a giant cell tumor, or uh, something along those lines that are a benign entity, but can still uh, have a similar appearance. And then if you're treating the uh, patients, are you doing any regular surveillance? How often are you seeing patients back? You're getting x-rays or you're getting a CT scan, um, MRI, if at all. Yeah, for that specific lesion that we're treating, typically surveillance with x-rays is uh, predominant. That being said, the patients, it's similarly a partnership with the medical oncologist that the patient has as well. Um, there's typically routine surveillance based on the patient's primary disease, and those are um, variable. Um, our institution is most commonly a PET CT is how they follow these patients. Um, and that's oftentimes how we find some of these new lesions as well as routine surveillance after the patient's primary diagnosis. But even after treatment of one of these bone lesions, the patients typically continue to get these routine um, scans um, for a number of years after, after their diagnosis and even after remission um, of their primary cancer. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and then for, um, I guess the the probably the last thing I, I would say, Dr. Couch, is anytime we have a guest on the show, we always uh, wonder uh, ask you if you have any words for our patients or patients, patients' families, uh, or friends uh, who have been uh, diagnosed recently with cancer or undergoing treatment at various stages. Uh, if you have any words that uh, you'd like to share uh, with them or that you tell your patients often? Some good ad advice is that fortunately, medicine is an ever-evolving field and we're getting better and better treatments. And a lot of patients that we initially may have thought were uncurable or had 
very terrible diseases we're seeing now are, are going into areas of cure and remission. So um, one of the the big ones that we've seen in the last decade or so is myeloma is one that um, traditionally was, did not have a great, great outcome. And But I'm seeing now patients 10, 15, 20 years out from multiple myeloma that are now having uh, remission free survival. Um, and other other cancers as well, so such as lung, that was one that we we knew had a pretty poor prognosis, and now we're having um, better and better treatments. And these are all from a medical oncology standpoint. There's unfortunately not a lot that I'm doing to make their survival better, but uh, we're we are finding that um, there are better treatments, and um, <clears throat> it's it's terrible when we find a bone metastasis. But now that we have better survival treatments, getting getting patients up and walking and um, returning their function of life can often um, can enjoy many more years of uh, with their families, with their loved ones, and I'd say that's a that's a big a big change that we've had recently, and always a kind of a, a glimpse of hope for some some patients as well. That's fantastic. I think definitely being able to live longer, but also have a great function um, with that long life uh, is what we all hope for our patients um, across the board. Uh, so, Elise, would you do you have any uh, salient points uh, would you like to go over for this uh, episode today? Yeah, I think you know it was a really great discussion, and thank you for for joining us, Dr. Couch, today. Um, so, just to summarize some of the points that we talked about, I know there are uh, several times where we brought up algorithms as being potentially part of our our treatment, and so one one of those. Uh, steps at which we do have a, a an algorithm to help guide us is when a patient presents to us the clinic with an unknown lesion. There is uh, a workup that we typically do and refer to the RUGRAF criteria in order to guide us in that workup, and that includes some imaging such as a CT chest, abdomen, pelvis to help identify a potential primary source along with additional labs. Um, and then another thing to Keep in mind as well uh, is that we can have patients who have metastases that occur either in the short term, but sometimes in a long period after their initial treatment. So these don't always appear at the time of presentation, but can sometimes occur at a longer time interval. And as Dr. Couch mentioned, that may suggest uh, if there's that long disease-free interval um, that these patients have a better prognosis or survival when that does happen at a very, very long time interval. Um, what other points uh, would you like to highlight from today's episode, Yuzu? Uh Yes, uh, Dr. Tatsu did a great job of reviewing a lot of things for us. I would say um, definitely um, paying attention to the different subtypes of the tumors, for example, renal cell and thyroid uh, being highly vascular, and often requiring some degree of uh, embolization uh, preoperatively, uh, as well as uh, making sure that we are really assessing uh, all our patients uh, for risk of fracture uh, properly, uh, is what I would add. And with that, um, that uh, brings us to a close of this episode. It is important to note that every patient's case is unique, and treatment for each diagnosis is dependent on a discussion with your team of physicians. If you would like more information, please feel free to check out our links in the episode description. Thank you for listening to the episode. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to hit subscribe and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And we also just launched our website, 
recently, sarcomainsight.com. All right, feel free to visit the website. I have the latest information on all our episodes as well as upcoming episodes. And I would like to say a special thank you to Dr. Uh, Corey Couch for spending his uh, time with us today. Uh, we are very thankful to have him on. Thank you so much, Izu and Elise. Thank you for having me and really appreciate the discussion this morning. Hopefully it can help a lot of our patients as well as some of our uh, future surgeons as well. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Sarcoma Insight.